Oh my god, best Nick Cage movie ever. Willy's Wonderland. My seven-year-old is hella into Five Nights at Freddy's, and he was like, I want to see this movie. So I was like, first horror movie? Let's go. I can't believe that he didn't say a word during that whole movie. And that sneer, how did he keep that sneer on his face the whole freaking film? Pops up a beer or a cold libation. Let me tell you how I wrote this little thing. I went and took a call from brother Jason, and he tells me that he has a little dream. He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast, and I ask him, What you got? He said, I'll start up with some talking and some moody clips of popcorn, fighting fantasy explorations and some groundless exploitation. Kickstarts that I'm watching and some blind unboxing, full month horror movie marathon. Sometimes I'll let the box come on, contest, and of course, you know it's all about games. That's a slogan. Let's just start with the name. It's the Nerds. With the other Jason. Welcome back to Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I'm your host, Jason. There at the top of the episode, we had Rich Frazier of the Cockatrice Nuggets podcast. Great podcast. Highly recommend you go listen to it. And he was commenting on the Nicolas Cage film, Willie's Wonderland, which I personally really enjoyed. It's kind of a riff off the whole Five Nights at Freddy thing. Or Five Nights at Freddy's? Yeah, I think that's right. I've never played that, but my understanding is a video game. Anyhow, Rich may have given me the idea for our next contest. Our next contest just might be, what is your favorite Nicolas Cage film that you would like to adapt to an RPG scenario? Or you know, what Nick Cage film you want to adapt an RPG scenario. That'll be May's contest. I'll announce it. I'll work out the details and announce it here in a future episode. But I've been really busy lately. I really appreciate everybody putting up with me and everybody sticking with the podcast. And I've got a ton of listener calls. So this episode is all listener calls all the time. I'm going to answer a whole bunch of calls. I have some calls that did not make it in this episode. So some of the more recent calls that have to do with the Marvel Multiverse playtest review and a few other things are not in this podcast. They will be probably in the next episode or the episode after that. I'm going to try not to put out just call-in episode after call-in episode, but I want to get all these calls answered. I have a content episode coming up next, and then hopefully we'll have another call-in episode and we'll be caught up. So without further ado, let's get into the calls. First up, we have Sam, who is a listener that requested I do a review of the Two Hour War Games product, Swordplay, and he's responding to how I've kind of failed him up to this point. Hey, Jason. Um, this is Sam. No podcast to plug because I'm a solo gamer, and um, there's only a handful of people that can pull that off, and I'm not one of them. Whichever version of Swordplay that you like... I'd love to hear you go over it. It doesn't matter. I mean, that's why I sent the email. I've heard you bring it up a couple of times, and I just wanted to get a better idea of it because the new version, you go from the battle board, but if you keep reading in the PDF, it gives you, in essence, the large-scale board to play with, with facing and everything like that. So I didn't know if there was an overlap, and I was just using the wrong rules or what. But anyway, use this, don't use this. I mean, you can blame it all on me. I'm okay with it. Sam, thank you for that call. We're not blaming anything on you, my friend. All the blame lies on me. As I said in a previous episode, I just keep bumping. I, I'm not happy with the final product when I've recorded these 
talks about swordplay, and I'm going to get it out there. I'm going to crack this nut. This is turning out to be a white whale for me. So I will get it out to you here shortly. Hopefully it's probably not going to be the next episode, but it should be maybe within the next half dozen episodes. I, I know that's kind of vague, sorry. But, but I will get it out there, and we'll talk about both the old and the new one. And it may not be so much a, a walkthrough. I was trying to do actual plays and this and that, and I just was never happy with it. So I may just pull back and do a larger kind of just concepts and, and how they work in the two, the older version, the newer version, the two-hour war games. So hopefully that will help you out. Um, but look for that here in the future. Okay, next up, we have MW of the Worlds of M.W. Lewis podcast. Hey, Jason. M.W. here at work, so trying to keep it a little on the, the lowdown. Um, listened in. Uh, good episode. Uh, sorry things have been so tough for you. Sounds like you got a new car. Sounds great. Um, I mentioned, uh, I guess previously, and maybe my call-in show when I, I activated the emergency uh, podcasting system, I'll be in the car market later this year, so it'll be fun to talk talk about it maybe on the podcast. So anyway, listen, um, I I love this idea of rolling for the damage at the end of the round, and of course I didn't even implement it in my Friday night game, and I guess, you know, old habits die really hard, so I didn't even think about it, but what, I, what I've slowly been doing, I, I am cognizant of it so uh what, what one thing i like about it is it mitigates this idea it, it, which is really common in the later editions of of AD&D or D&D and other role playing games and i'll continue in a second where players just dance around from one opponent to the other. And I already mentioned this in one of my previous call-ins, but for anyone who might have missed it, I don't really like that, especially in an open battle area where you know people have paired off. There could be more than 10 feet distance between opponents, uh, and players want to immediately try to move to assist someone who's wounded or move from their opponent if it's fallen, uh, and they want to jump immediately to someone else. And I think in the AD&D mechanic, that doesn't... It's not really part of the game. You declare your action before the round, and you got to follow through with your action. I will allow adjustments under certain circumstances. So what I've been able to do in the Monday night game, which I like, and I'm going to try to get more to rolling the damage after all the two hits, uh, is when when uh, players are double teaming an opponent, I make them both roll their two hit simultaneously, and then their damage. If so, as I was saying, I have them roll simultaneously. And, and, and a couple of nice things about this. One, it's one less person sitting around waiting for you to get to them. So, if uh, two characters, so last night I had a fighter and a monk attacking the same opponent. And when a guy got to, got to them and I was ready to adjudicate their part of the battle, I just said, both of you, roll. And then they both rolled and both were like, hit, hit. And then I said, okay, now both of you roll your damage. And the creature I knew was dead because it only had one hit point in this particular round. It was already wounded really badly. But nevertheless, I just told them both to roll their damage. They rolled their damage, and then I'm like, you, you know, the creature falls. And that prevented one of them from saying, I'm now going to redirect my attack somewhere else down the line. And I didn't have to get into this discussion with them. Oh, you know, I don't think, really think you would do that. So I didn't have to say, I don't really think you'd do that. You're so focused on this this monster in front of you or this opponent in front of you. You don't know what you don't know what's going on with 
the other fighter and the other monster. You're you're focused on this one. So that didn't come up, and they're both. They were both super excited. They were like, "Yeah, we really, you know, we really slaughtered that thing." And I didn't say, "Oh, it only had one hit point." Anyway, I just like, "Yeah, man, you guys, you know, I described what happened, how the creature." took both of their blows and just fell and, and you know the players feel they don't care they're just like this is great you know so I, I'm slowly trying to implement this I think it creates a little more reality and I, this gets to your whole concept of the hidden hit points I've been reserving calling in on that I actually really love the concept but I'm nervous that it wouldn't work I, I just see it opening the door to a lot of arguing in games if, if you're not skilled enough as a DM to properly describe the, in, the damage taken so if you're using hidden hit points and you're using uh, new terms to describe the damage I can see that really opening up yourself up to a lot of arguing with players you didn't make it sound like I was that wounded you and then on the other hand if you use the same terms over and over and over again which basically correlate to a certain level of health then I would argue that's really what's the difference then having numerical health or specific terminology that correlates to some kind of level of health so if you're allowing the DM to be creative and, and come up with new ways of describing it I think it's going to open the door to a lot of arguing and if you're just using the same terminology that's correlated to certain levels then I just think it's why even bother and you know my, my philosophy as a DM when I got six players I, I like the players to manage things let them manage their hit points I, I'm, I'm just going to tell them how many hit points so I think I got a little cut off. I would just let the players manage their own hit points. One less thing for me to worry about. You know, I, I do keep track of player hit points also. Um, I have to admit, there's a reason I do it. Uh, sometimes I don't want the most heroic person to fall to a giant rat. So I just like to know. I just like to know what hit points they have, and I like to keep my own sheet. Um, but generally, I want the players to manage their own stuff. I want them to know their spells. I want them to know how many slots they have. I want them to know what magic items they have. I want them to know their hit points. I, I don't mind if they have a two-hit table. They can, they can roll and let me know uh, what they needed to hit. If they don't know, I have it on the screen. I'll look it up. But, you know, when I have... I had a lot of things going on last night, for instance, in a battle. Monday night AD&D, and we had clerics using spells and against the party and I had a lot to do so I was perfectly fine with them knowing what they needed to hit and stuff and, and managing their own hit points so anyway so I was saying great show uh, Jason hope you uh, I hope at some point in the future you can hop back in on the Friday night um, Greyhawk game that, that would be really cool if you could get back in or even you know consider joining the Monday night AD&D game so anyway talk to you later AMW thank you so much for those calls really appreciate them yeah i the new car I bought wasn't planned. I, I didn't really want a new vehicle. It just made sense. It didn't make any sense to pay, you, you know, five times in repair bills what the van's worth kind of thing, right? So I just pretty much bought the cheapest thing that would serve my purposes well enough. So I just got a 2022 um, Nissan Sentra base model, and it's doing fine. Um it's not an exciting car. It's not a fun car. It's just a daily driver, grocery getter kind of car. And so I got no complaints. Gets good gas mileage. Uh, better about, I don't know, eight or ten miles better than the van actually, which is great. So I'm not complaining about that. But, you know, it's close to 
somewhere between, depending on the driving, like 35, 38 miles a gallon, something like that. So it's doing really good gas mileage um, for a regular car. So no real complaints about it, but nothing exciting about it either, if that makes sense. As far as the whole hidden hit point thing and the idea of rolling at the same time, I also like the idea of doing all damage to the end of the round. And I definitely like, this is why I like action declaration. Because, you know, the character doesn't know that other opponent dropped yet. And if you're talking about a very short, if you're talking minute-long rounds, it gets murkier, like AD&D. But if you're talking six-second, five-second, one-second rounds, like GURPS or something, right? You don't have time to adjust and, and turn around and attack this other opponent five feet away when you're already going to hit this other opponent in front of you. I mean, depending on the time length, maybe you do, but I... Yeah, I like declaration of actions. I like figuring everybody doing all their roles and then the GM describing what happens at the end. And that just saves the problem of people over-gaming it. And interestingly enough, you know, this is a discussion I've had with Joe over at Hindsightless. Because in Pathfinder, he doesn't like it when people look at the initiative order, you know, the turn tracker to, to know, you know, where people go in initiative. And they decide what they're doing in attacks off that. So he's complained before where players have seen that, you know, because they're playing on a virtual tabletop and they have a turn tracker that everybody can see the initiative order. And he's like, well, you're going to attack that goblin and you're probably going to kill it. So I'm going to attack this goblin instead because I know that you're going before me and, and, and really, you know, playing it out. I don't have that problem of that planning out as much if it doesn't take too long for the players to do it. I don't want it to drag the game down. But doing declaration of actions and, and figuring all the damage and describing the damage at the end, I, I think helps eliminate some of that. So as far as the hidden hit points go, yeah, it was just something I heard on a different podcasts over gaming and BS podcast. And I was curious to see if anybody else thought of, thought about it. My gut feeling is it would be a mess at the table. Like you say, I do like the idea, as I mentioned in a previous episode about rolling for hit points either at the beginning of the day or beginning of the encounter in D&D because your hit points are a mix of luck and strength and skill and all these other things. So if you're talking about luck and skill and, you know, how alert you are and all that as part of your hit points, well, that's going to vary day to day and all that kind of thing. So I could definitely see have, and, you know, if you're going to do that, that now we're going deep into house rule territory here. But if you're going to roll hit points before each encounter each day, you, with that explanation of what, that's why you're rolling them each time, then that also opens up. If characters don't get sleep, they get woken up in the night, they take hit point damage because they're going to have that much more luck and that much less, or that much less luck, less alert, alertness, and they're going to be that much less effective on the battlefield with very little sleep. So you could say, you know, if you don't get your full eight hours sleep, you have less hip, you know, you take hit point damage. Now, I know people would hate that, but it kind of sort of makes sense when you think about how they describe what D&D hit points are. I don't know, just throwing that out there. Um, but thank you so much for the calls. I really, really appreciate them. The, yeah, the Friday night games, not, I'll get with you offline about getting into one of your groups. I would like to do that. I would like to rejoin. I miss playing AD&D, but I, my schedule's just a mess right now. So I'll reach out to you separately on that. Next caller is also going to talk about hidden hit points, and it's Eric Salsweedle. 
of the 3D Omega Chicken Coop Podcast. Is it secret? Is it safe? Hey, Jason, calling in about your hidden hit points. Um, I have a couple thoughts on this. Um, the, my first thought is, I don't know what the point of the hidden hit points are. I, that's not true. I have a theory of why a Game Master would want to do hidden hit points, but I don't want to be um, jumping to conclusions on that. So I'll throw out my theory, and those um, of the clan that like hidden hit points can um, either tell me I'm wrong or say, yep, that's why. So, you know, I think that a Game Master might want hidden hit points because it could remove sort of a metagamey um, component to the game where a character looks down, they see their hit points are low, and they're like, we got to rest. We can't move on until we have full hit points, or we're not going to fight the Manticore because I'm down 10 hit points, or whatever. I, I think that's the reason why someone would do hidden hit points. Um, my personal opinion is I don't think I would, I would like that. Um, I, I think that if you wanted to get away from hit points in general, then I'm more of the mindset that you go with some sort of, like, wound system, you know, where, like, your character's either lightly wounded, wounded, heavily wounded, severely wounded, or whatever. You, you know, you come up with something. I'm just spitballing here. It's probably not going to work out in that fashion. But um, the hidden hit point thing, yeah, I don't, I don't know what it really buys you. Because, like, in real life, you know, I've done some martial arts and sports ball. I mean, you kind of know, you know, how you're feeling. Like, if you've been rocked... Like, you know you're rocked. You're like, oh, man, I, I just, I got 10 hit points. I just took 7 damage. I get whacked again. I, I'm going down, right? Or if you're exhausted or spent, like, you know. You're, like, hands on your knees, taking deep breaths. Maybe you feel like barfing. Um, maybe you're cramping up and your legs aren't working. Like, like you know that your your, your hit points are are low, right? So, so I don't know... I don't know if I'd like buy into it or I don't really understand what it would get you. Um, and as far as um, the the running the game where like the players don't know the rules, um, if those guys are having fun with that, that's awesome. And and I would probably try it. But personally, I'm kind of in Carl's boat on this one. It's not something that I think I would like long term. I mean, part of one of the reasons I like playing role playing games is like I like the rules. I like learning the rules and then figuring out how the rules work. Um, certain situations, maybe figuring out how to, um, you know, how the rules can be used to your advantage as part of the game, um, or if it's a game about optimization, you know, figuring out how to optimize the best you can. I mean, it all kind of depends on, you know, what you're playing and the group and what kind of tone you're trying to set. But I don't, I don't think I would like not knowing the rules. And, and once again, I don't know what that buys you. I guess it gets you into, hey, just do stuff. But then, you know, I, there's got to be a high level of trust there. I'm assuming that group probably has a high level of trust. And, you know, you're very reliant on the game master there to be the complete arbiter of everything. And, you know, I don't know. Maybe at that point, you just, like, sit around and play, like, a game of pretend where each person gets a narrative thing to say, and, and you just don't even have rules at that point. Anyway, that's my thought. Also, I mean, I have a lot of dice, and I like to roll them on occasion as a player. So not being able to roll any of the dice, that would be kind of sad too. Um, so there's that. And then um, your other comment about um, hit points and rolling your hit dice before a fight. Uh, I've actually talked to one of my other friends about this before. This was something he had an idea for as well. Um, and I think that there's some interesting components to that. Um, I do have a couple like mechanical issues in my head 
you know, so you're a fifth level fighter, you roll your five hit dice, and you roll all twos, right? So, you know, why did you roll all twos before that encounter? Like, if my character was well rested the night before in the inn, and he didn't drink too much meat, and he had some good mutton, you know, like, why wouldn't he be at full hit points the next day? or before that battle, unless you're just looking for a completely random, like, factor of how someone is on any given day. Because I do agree, right? Like, there are days where I work out, and, like, I kick ass. Like, I'm like, man, that workout was badass. I just crushed it. And there are other days where I do it, and I'm like, well, I was not very good during that workout, and I sucked. So I do agree that that does happen. Um... Would it make it very interesting from a gaming standpoint? I don't know. I don't know. I think you'd have to have some other mechanics there about, like, how you rested the night before, what are their conditions, and et cetera, for that, for me personally, for that to work. Um, uh, the, the game uh, that I called in for your White Whale contest, one of them, Ryutama, the um, Japanese travel game, that does have some of those components. We don't necessarily roll hit dice every day. But your condition changes based on what happens during your journey for, between point A and point B. So, like, if you rolled your ankle, you could roll your ankle, like, foraging for berries, then that's going to affect you um, through the next day or if you are sick or whatever, um, and it affects your overall ability to roll. So, But this discussion on hidden hit points has inspired me to potentially do a show in the future uh, about... Um, the zero hit point condition. I think that's another interesting discussion. Anyway, man, take it easy. Hey, Eric, thank you so much for that call. I already kind of addressed the hidden hit point and the idea of rolling hit points before an encounter each day. So I'm not really going to talk much more about those. Like I say, right now I'm thinking the rolling hit points, you know, before each encounter or each day or whatever is more interesting. Maybe incorporating something with like sleep you know, bad sleep, not getting enough sleep gives you a negative hit point. I don't know. I I agree with you. It's something that needs to be play tested and messed with. And it's not something you just plug into your game. It's something that needs to have some bugs worked out of it. But but I think you could find some interesting things there. Um, and maybe you have a minimum. So your fifth level fighter, like 25 hit points. And so you're not going to drop below that. The problem is with D&D, how many of your hit points are really flesh and blood? Right. And how many are, you know, your first level hit points, your starting hit points when you first level, you create the character. Is that your flesh and blood hit points? So everything above. So maybe your first level character, maybe the hit points you have when you start the game, that's your minimum hit points you could have no matter what when you reroll each time. But all the rest of it is that luck. I, I don't know. You, you know, so it would definitely take some tinkering and messing around. I mean, that's one thing that the leading edge games do, interestingly, is you don't have hit points. Basically, when you're hit, you just roll system shock. And depending the the more severity of the hit and the location of the hit, the, the harder that system shock is going to be to survive. And then, of course, your physical stuff affects how well you, you, you can roll system shock. So th- that's an interesting way to do it, too. There, there's different ways to do it, like you say, wounds, whatever. Um, but thank you so much for the call. I really appreciate it. I do look forward to hearing more on your show. I hope you get that episode out. Um, zero hit points, I guess, the idea being, are you dead at zero hit points or unconscious? Um, I'm okay with systems that go, you're dead at zero. I'm also fine with systems like, say, Pathfinder, at least 1E, where you're dead when you hit your negative constitution. So if you have constitution of 15, at zero, you're down. 
at negative 15, you're dead. I'm okay with that personally. I know other people, you know, have different opinions, but yeah, I look forward to hearing other people's thoughts on these things. Next caller is actually somebody I mentioned earlier in the show, Joe of Hindsightless. Yo, Jason, dude, that's an epic quest you're on, reading all of the Stephen King stuff, man. I wish you the best of luck. Godspeed on that one. Uh, so I have read both versions of The Dark Tower, and I didn't notice a lot of difference. In the first book, he added a few sentences to sort of tie that book closer into the rest of the series. But anything after the third book, so anything after The Wastelands, I don't think has been revised at all. So yeah, man, um, I don't think there's any reason to read them both. If you read the original, I, I, I don't think you're missing much. And as far as The Stand goes, so the revised version of The Stand, from what I understand, he released The Stand and then was like, you know what? I'm awesome, and I want to make this longer because I need to flesh it out more. And he was right. Peace out. Hey, Joe, thank you so much for that call. Yeah, you, you know, and I'm, unfortunately, because I've been so busy lately and life has been such a bear, I haven't gotten very far in that. I've finished watching all the Mr. Mercedes on TV, the third season now, and third season's definitely not as good as the first two. But it's still, you know, if you have Peacock and, and you enjoy... Stephen King stuff. It's worth watching. Um, I, I'm almost done, Carrie. I, like I say, I, unfortunately, my rereading of the Stephen King books is consigned to, at night before I go to bed. So I get like ten pa- five, ten pages and go to sleep. <laughs> but even in Carrie, his first book, you see the genius at Stephen King. You know, there's phrasing in there and there's, you know, the, the way... Because really, characterization and descriptions are, are where he shines. I mean, he has other stuff that shines... But, but that, you know, and, and some of his, I, I, I'm in the car recording this, as I said, begin the show. So I don't have examples for you because there are passages. I was reading this thinking, yeah, you can see his genius in here and just evocative things and things that make images pop out your mind, you know, passages in there that do that. So yeah, I'm really enjoying Carrie and, and Carrie's a, you know, interesting experiment where, you know, it's, it's kind of the story and then you have newspaper articles and and journal expert and, and journal excerpts and things mixed in with it where the where people talk about the Kerry White incident you, you know years later and uh, and yeah so it's it's a really interesting novel it's I, I, you know for a first novel it really it really does a great job but yeah so I, anyway but thank you for that uh, you know I was looking you mentioned really quickly and then we'll go on the next call the dark tower stuff so I found a website that has, it compares the revised and the original. And it's, I think I sent you a link to it a while back, but it's really long. Like there are a ton of things he changed. Just little things like sentence wording and like there are poems in there. there he rewords and there's all kind or maybe there's supposed to be songs that he rewords. But, you know, but there's all kinds of things that I don't think have any substantial difference to the story or anything. But it's just him fiddling with the stuff, you know. It's like Steven Spielberg going back and changing the the guns in E.T. to walkie-talkies, that kind of thing, right? Or the George, things George Lucas do with Star Wars. I think he's just going back and fiddling with the stuff and trying to really fine-tune it. And I don't know. I, I bought the revised, the ones marked revised, so that's the Dark Tower series I have. 
I kind of wonder if I shouldn't have bought the originals and, and, and just read those instead. I don't know. I, I may go, I may end up with both. Um, I haven't decided which one I'll read yet. So, but thank you so much for the calls. Really appreciate it or the call. And you know what? That's not the only call Joe gave me, but let me give you a little bit of setup before we go into this next call. MW, who we heard earlier, had award in a previous episode had awarded Eric Salzweeder, who we just heard. He awarded him an award for misconstruing him, the misconstruer of the year award or, or something to that effect. I apologize, I don't have it in front of me. But so I have responses from both Joe and Eric on that award. So I'm gonna play those now. Yo, Jason, sorry, dude, I haven't finished the episode yet, but I'm listening to NW's calls where he's given Eric the award for misconstruing his statements, and that really reminded me of something you said recently on my show, and that's when I was talking about how I gave out a clue that was a little too subtle and none of the players picked it up, and you called in to say that if a dungeon master gives out clues and none of the players pick it up, whose fault is that, right? Because communication goes both ways. So... If your communication is totally misconstrued and taken the wrong way, isn't the speaker also partially responsible for that? Because a lot of meaning comes from tone and how you say a thing. So if you say a thing in a certain way, it can easily get misconstrued, even if you didn't mean it that way. So I think that award needs to be split between MW and Eric. Peace out. Oh my god, I I cannot believe I have won this award. I uh, I'm at a loss for words. I I just can't believe it. Uh, it but first off, I I'd like to thank MW for giving me this opportunity to have the largest misconstruence in the history of podcasting. I, without MW not being able to clearly explain his point, I was unable to understand him and therefore had the biggest misconstruence that's ever existed. So I have to thank you, MW. Thank you very much. Thank you. Without you and without my parents, my misconstruence coach when I was a child, I, this will be going on my mantle next to the city championship where I scored four touchdowns. Thank you to the Academy. Thank you to MW. Thank you to everyone. Hey, Jason, Eric here, just having a little bit of fun there. Um, and MW, I am sorry, I did say in my original communication that uh, if you were going to correct me, that I could accept correction. You corrected me, and I have misconstrued your words. You don't believe all 5e players are bad. Just this one guy is bad who happened to have played 5e at some point in his life. I will give you some uh, mild feedback there. I do think saying it's the most misconstrued thing ever is a bit extreme. And uh, I think it was kind of unnecessary. But I do accept your correction that I was misconstruing your comments. And uh, I'll move forward. I actually listened to your uh, 5e ep interview episode. I hate the Anchor app for leaving messages, so I haven't sent you anything. If I find an email of some sort, I may send you something in the future. Um, as far as the gatekeeping discussion, um, Jason, I think I gave you the impression a little bit that I was lumping people into groups, and um, I agree with you. I do not want to um, lump people into groups either, unless the people have decided to classify themselves. And I, I think I messaged you on Discord. Um, in this case specifically, 
I, you know, I don't know why I'm on Twitter. Um, there is some interesting stuff, but there's also some train wrecks to watch. Um, there is a group of, of individuals that proudly declare themselves OSR. They wear it on hats, tattoos, you know, banners on their Twitter accounts and etc. And they do appear to be having a battle with what I would call um, individuals who are not playing old school um, Renaissance or Revival, whatever you want to call it, games, whether those are 5e, Powered by the Apocalypse, or some other variation of a newer game that I'm not aware of. Um, so, yeah, I, I personally don't want to classify anyone. It, it, it would appear, based on my analysis, that these individuals are are, clar- are classifying themselves, much like someone who says that they are a punk rocker or that they are metal or someone that says I am a motorhead and, you know, just different things like that. So um, I do appreciate the, the comments all around that. Um, and what else did I want to clarify? Was there something else? My brain just went a little dead there and I'm stalling. Um, oh, that was it. The, the other term that I heard recently, because you guys were talking about, uh, you know, OSR and, and it being meaningless now, it was... Uh, Neo OSR Revival. Now, I have no idea what that means, but I was just like, wow, okay, that's a fancy term. Anyway, man, take it easy. Okay, guys, thank you for the calls. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, MW is being a little bit facetious there with that award and a little bit overblown. Um, but, hey, it's always nice to get words, right? And there's no question that bo- if there's a communication problem, you have two-part, you know, communications, the sender and the receiver. So b- both people are involved. But I, I you know, I, I don't know. I, I kind of on, fell on MW's side, I do think. But what happened, folks, for those of you that are, are newer to the podcast or missed the episode, MW was talking about uh, some problems he had with a player that had come to his AD&D game who had previously played 5e, and he, he wasn't willing to adopt to the play style of AD&D and, and the conventions of AD&D. He wanted to bring in these 5e conventions, I guess. I, I haven't played 5e. But what... And then Eric kind of blew that up to all... Something about all 5e players, maybe. I, I, I'd have to go back and listen. But anyway, the point is, th- these guys are giving each other some jabs, and, and they can do that. My podcast is open for that, as long as it's all in, you know, good fun. But... Eric, as far as the Twitter thing and people adopting things, you know, that's one of the frustrating things, right? Because you've got, like, look at this new movie coming out, The Northman, by, uh, is it Robert Eggers, I believe? You know, he did he, he did The Vich, and he did, um, the, or no, did he do The the, the Witch, The Vich, um, and then The Lighthouse, I think? Anyway, but the this movie, he's not pushing white supremacy, he's not pushing any kind of Northern European elitism or anything, right? But you know darn well there are people going to adopt, adopt this. I haven't seen it yet. But you know darn well there are people going to adopt this movie that are going to be on the whole white power thing, right? And it's not this director's fault. It's not the actor's fault. But this movie is going to catch this rep just like other ones do where they get picked up by causes. And, you know, it's a shame. So I, I think we see that with role-playing games too where – you have a, a role-playing game comes out and a certain community latches onto it and it's not necessarily the intent of the designers or the intent of most of the players but that vocal minority you know take takes hold of it and you know go, gets out of control 
So I, maybe that's just happening on Twitter with the OSR. Some of the OSR defenders, I, I don't know. I don't do Twitter. Um, I, my blood pressure is much healthier with me not doing social media aside from Discord and calling into anchor shows. So, Okay, next up, we have some calls from Daniel of the Bandits Keep Media Empire. Hey, Jason. Daniel from Bandits Keep calling in. I was going to call in on the other episode, but I jumped forward to the new one because you're talking about the hidden hit points and the rolling. So it seems like maybe you don't know about this because the way you're explaining it. Uh, Jeffrey McKinney uh, wrote a supplement called Carcosa, originally for original Dungeons & Dragons, and then later republished for Lamentations of the Plain Princess. It does pretty much what you and Joe are talking about. Each time you enter an encounter, you roll uh, dice for your hit points uh, equal to your hit dice. And actually what he does is he has you leave the dice on the table. And as you take damage, you basically remove the hit points and eventually dice. If you get to the next encounter, and let's say you you used up an entire hit die, then when you roll for that encounter, you don't have that hit die anymore. Just to make it a little more interesting, the actual dice that you roll for your hit dice also change based on what you roll. And, oops, second message. Just to break in here before Daniel's second message, I actually am aware of Carcosa from Mr. McKinney. I own a copy. That was back from, well, ways back from the G-plus days. I I remember finding it on G-plus and ordering it. I've got a hard copy of it that I ordered from, I believe, from him personally, if I remember right. I didn't realize the Lamentations Carcosa was the same, an updated version of that product. I thought it was something totally different. I didn't know he was involved in Lamentations version, which I own on PDF, but have actually never looked at (laughs) <laughs> like so many of the PDFs I have. But I I haven't looked at Carcosa by Mr. McKinney since, you know, I got it back, you know, whenever it came out, right? Was it 2008, 2010, something like that, right? Long, long ago. So I, I, I probably somewhere in the depths of my memory remembered something about that, and that's where that idea came from. I don't claim it was an original idea, the rolling hit dice, the being of each encounter. But I had honestly forgotten that was incorporated in Carcosa. I'm going to have to break out that booklet and reread it and see exactly how it works in there. But Daniel has more to say, so let's go back to that. Just to make things a little more interesting, you also roll to see how much, you know, which type of dice your weapon uses. So <laughs> that's every single hit with the weapon. The, the hit points are only every encounter. I believe that the original Dungeons & Dragons version of this, which uses the same rules, is available as a PDF somewhere. Uh, the limitations one, obviously, you would probably need to pay for. Uh, but uh, if you are more inter- if you are interested in this or people listening are interested, I can actually explain it a little bit more. I've used it twice. It is wild and fun and crazy and definitely not for everyone. <laughs> but it's a, I think it's a very cool idea. It just, it, it doesn't slow down combat either because of the way it's set up, but... Um, it's, it's just very neat. Oh, of course, you have to use a lot of dice. In any case, awesome conversation. Okay, so you are talking about the usage die, which you know I'm not a fan of, and uh, missile and why it doesn't work or whatever, or you know why missile is different than melee. Uh, see, I disagree with you because I don't imagine somebody just firing off 100 arrows into combat, in a, in a, even in a one-minute round. I, I feel like you're standing there, you're aiming, you're waiting for an opening I, you know, I guess, yes, then there's two different kinds of combat, right? If you're doing like a war and you're just standing, you know, 100 yards away shooting your longbow, you might shoot arrow after arrow after arrow. And then the one minute rounds don't make any sense at all. 
But if you are, are talking about an actual small melee and you're just outside trying to shoot an arrow, I always imagine the reason why you only get one or two arrows off is because you're waiting for an opening. But that's just me, I guess. So that's like kind of how I justify it. I guess it's all about justifying what we like or don't like, I guess. So, yeah, definitely. It's glad to hear that you successfully use the rolling hit dice per encounter thing. Like I say, I'll break out Carcos. I've got the print copy somewhere and, I'll ch- and I've got it on PDF as well. So I'll, I'll check that out. As far as the arrow thing, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, you can shoot arrows pretty rapidly, to be honest. It, it just depends, right? Um, th- there's video out there, I don't know how easy it is to find, of Howard Hill, who actually did the archery for Arrow Flynn's Robin Hood, the famous traditional archer back in the day, and he did a lot with Hollywood and all. There, there's a video of him boar hunting. And I don't know where it is now, and I'm, like, say, in the car right now, but where he's, you know, actually getting charged by a boar, and he's just whipping arrows off, you, you know, one every couple seconds, it, it, you know, pretty rapidly. It's pretty amazing. Um, but, yeah, I, I can see what you're saying there, too. I, I just figure the that, that helps. It, it always was a disconnect for me that each arrow is a, sing, a missile weapon is a single shot, but the melee is a flurry of blows in AD&D. It just always was a verisimilitude. It always broke that for me. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, but, it, like you say, it, it's up to each individual and what they can justify and what they feel is right. And I, I wouldn't necessarily say either interpretation's wrong or right. They're just different interpretations, you know? So, anyway, Daniel's got some more to say here. So, let's go back to the phone. I'm also going to say that uh, if you don't like uh, house rules, then you should not be playing first edition because first edition is just a whole bunch of house rules to the one and only D&D game, which is (laughs) OD&D. I'm kidding, of course. But uh, yeah, I I tend to agree with you on some level. I I think that trying to, because you're using the word fix, trying to fix a game um, is a bad approach because I don't think most games are broken. They just don't run the way necessarily everybody wants them to run. And there's so many retro clones and stuff. You can probably find one that has the rules you want or just strip it back like I did and run OD&D and add the one or two things from AD&D that are actually decent, like the amazing uh, hand-to-hand combat rules in Psionics, and then move on. Although, actually, Psionics are better in OD&D as well. Hmm. Definitely tend to agree with you a lot about house rules and such, and... Um, it's interesting you were bouncing around house ruling in the Street Fighter game. I don't know how much experience you have with it, but my normal rule is to try to run the game as close as possible to my understanding of the rules, at least for a little bit, one or two times, maybe five times, maybe a month, depending on the game and how complex the rule system is, before I even think about making any house rules. I find people immediately saying, oh, I haven't even started playing this game yet, but I open the book, read the rules, and start changing things. I think that's just not a good idea, personally. Um, I want to get a grasp and the feel of what the designer wanted. I might not agree with that. I might change that, but I want to know what they were going for before I decide to make changes. Because sometimes you make changes thinking that you know better and you find that you've actually kind of trashed the game. (laughs) Having been a player in some games where people have done that, I can say it happens. So first off, Daniel, I agree with you on house rules. It sounds like we're pretty much aligned there. And I honestly don't remember, without going back and listening to the old podcast, what I said about house rolling Street Fighter. Whatever it would have been, would have been 
oh, I think it was not using some of the powers and things in later books, which any anything with that was just maybe from reading through a ton of forum posts and talking to people that played it in the past and kind of going what they did back when they played the game and what they found was broken in the game and things like that. Like, I guess later on, some of the powers and some of the things are some of the moves and martial arts styles in, in that game are extremely broken. Um, I, I, I think cyborgs and the animal, you know, bio mutants were noted and some, and there were some other things that were noted as just being, you know, extremely unbalanced with the rest of the game. But again, I haven't played it, so I don't know. I, I, I tend to agree with you that you should definitely run a game as written before you, you change anything, um, at least a couple times. So I, I think for the most part, we're on the same sheet of music there. AD&D, yeah, you know, AD&D is an interesting animal. I have an extreme fondness for AD&D. A ton of that's nostalgia and a ton of it's fascination with this desire to, to codify D&D, right? Gygax's desire to codify it and say, you will play it this way. I'm not going to play it this way. I'm not going to run it this way, but you, the players, need to run it this way, right? And, and obviously, you can use AD&D as a toolkit, and you can use the Dungeons & Master Guide as a toolkit. And, and I think all those AD&D products, especially the core three books, are well worth reading by everybody. I think there's some interesting stuff in there. And the Dungeon Master's Guide, the Stream of Consciousness Advice, for experienced DMs, which is what it you know really is, it is just an amazing thing. But honestly, I was talking to Joe Richter earlier about this, not during the podcast, but off offline. And we and, and I told him, even though AD and D holds that extremely special place in my heart, I of the Gygaxian D and D variants, OD and D I think is my favorite because it's so rules light. So. You know, I know other people's opinion may vary on that. But Daniel has one more call, so let's go to that. Well, those Dominion rules seem really interesting. I'll definitely have to check it out. I, I definitely like the idea of more of a toolkit-type game, uh, as we've discussed. And uh, it's it's interesting the uh, the way uh, he was describing the initiative. Cause I just played it in a tabletop war game, I guess you would call it. Uh, it was like a playtest at GaryCon. And the initiative was done similarly, where everybody rolled, and then effectively the person that was the slowest initiative moved first, but then the person with the fastest initiative shot first. So basically, if you were the best initiative, you got to see everybody else move first, then you moved, and you were immediately able to raise your hands or whatever. So it's really cool, cool for strategy. The mind type game, how much. Out. I'd be really curious. Sounds like he uh, has used the system on subclass X, so I'll have to jump over there and listen to that one. I'm so far behind on everything. <laughs> Thank you, Daniel. I think, of course, Dominion Rules is something that James Schrall of the Subclass Act solo actual play podcast has turned me on to. This season, he's doing an actual play of Traveler using the classic Traveler rules. Highly recommend you go check it out. It's very interesting. Um... Dominion, the Dominion rules or, or something, I'll link them in the show notes. That is an interesting thing. I don't know. I mean, I'd have to play with it to see how it works at the table. I like it in theory. But somebody who has played a game with rules like that at the table is Carl Rodriguez, the Geomologist Presents. And let's hear from him now. Hey, Jason. This is a response to James Thrall's uh, call-in 
I really like that initiative system and I've experienced something similar using DC Heroes. And of course I got to play Superman, who's always gonna go first and know what the slow guys are gonna do. <laughs> so it, it does make for some really neat tactical choices. Like for example, like I knew the bad guy was gonna run away. So then I'm like, well, I'm gonna intercept him because Superman's super fast um, and is gonna run to where he's gonna go and stand in front of him or get in front of him and let him run into him, right? So it worked out pretty well. So it's kind of a, I like that kind of system. It's kind of neat because you can react um, to, if you declare the actions from the slowest to fastest, then you can react, you know, I guess it's a little metagamey maybe for some people, but you can react to their actions because you know what's coming. It's kind of like how um, X-Wing worked as well as like the slowest, uh, Hey, Carl, thank you for contributing that. Really appreciate it. DC Heroes is a game I read back in the day, never played. We always played TSR's Marvel superheroes. I now have bought, like, all the core stuff for DC Heroes. I, I don't have all the modules, but I have a copy of all three editions of the game. I've got, like, the Justice League Guide, the two books for Legion of Superheroes. I've got all the, like, the supplements to their version of the official guide to the Marvel Universe, whatever DC called it, the, like the who's who in DC, I think, something like that. I, I've got all the those for the DC heroes, plus I bought all the comics that they supplement to. I've got the, the Batman game. I've got both editions of the Batman source book, the Superman source. Anyway, I've got a bunch of DC heroes stuff now, and, and I'm definitely interested to dive back into that system. It's funny, all these new systems are coming out, and Marvel superheroes from TSR and DC heroes from Mayfair are still the two games that to me are the games to beat for superhero games. Now I did enjoy the Mar Marvel multiverse playtest, and I am looking forward to playing that some more as soon as we can get it back to the table. I am not giving up on that game, but I'm very interested to get DC heroes back to the table. So Carl, we need to get that on the schedule, but Carl has a little bit more to say. So, I'm going to turn the mic back over. I don't know if this defends anybody or not, so maybe I'll just put it out there. Um, so I haven't had many bad experiences, truth be told, even though I know I tell a lot of war stories of quote-unquote bad players, but they all make for great memorable moments, right? But I've had some bad experiences that I can think of um, in two different games, one at a conventions with pickup players, I guess let's be specific, um, and the only bad experience I've, I've had consistently, honestly, is playing an Adventures League. The other one was a game of Rift's Savage Worlds, where one of the players was drunk and talked over everyone, and it was just unpleasant for everyone on board. But it seems like Adventures League, and usually it wasn't the players, honestly, it was the GM and how controlling and the lack of rules mastery that they had which is surprising for Adventures League, right? An or right? organized uh, play for them. You'd think these GMs would be vetted. Maybe they're not. I mean, um, I've had games in other organized play, so it's not s specific to organized play. I used to play Living Greyhawk. I have played in Paizo's organized play. And so it doesn't seem to be that, but there seems to be a particular... Unfortunately, and I love, I do enjoy 5e. I've run a lot of 5e. I've had really fun campaigns, and 
not-so-fun campaigns, but it has nothing to do with the game system. It all boils down to players and who you interact with. And if you honestly, if you have a, a really all, uh, not a good GM, right? And I think the combination of not a good GM would be lack of rules mastery, but being an authoritarian at the table with that lack of rules mastery. Hey, Carl, there are always things that slip through the cracks and bad apples. And I think you're right. The idea of a power trip plus lack of rules mastery. I mean, the power trip by itself is a bad thing. But then you add that to not really understanding the game or trying to force your interpretation of the rules that don't drive everybody else's through could really sour things. I've never really played in any of those organized play leagues, so I can't really comment on that. But thank you for sharing those experiences. Next up, we're going to get into a talk about old school and new school and those kind of terms and the play styles from the Pink Phantom, somebody that's calling into a variety of Anchor podcasts and taking the world by storm, and I'm happy about that because there's a lot of knowledge being dropped in the calls from the Pink Phantom. So open your ears and open your mind. Hey, Jason, the Pink Phantom here. I was listening to your last podcast talking about how the terms old school and new school have kind of lost their meaning. And I I agree with that because... There's a lot of games that talk about themselves as OSR games or inspired by the OSR. And they strip out things like encumbrance and keeping track of rations and arrows. And to me, that, that's part of the old school game. That's, you know, that goes back to the fact that it, the original games, which is usually what old school means, is, are derived from a wargaming background. They had wargaming, these groups played wargaming sort of mass battles a lot of it napoleonics and it evolved to where hey what if we controlled one guy hey what if we controlled one guy in a fantasy setting we want to play these fantasy novels and and uh, sword and sorcery novels and you know science fiction type novels with that mix magic and technology and we want to try that and so just naturally a lot of the things like weapon speed factors and and encumbrance and and managing what the party has as much as what the party can do was part of that old school mindset. Now I'm not saying you have to have all that for it to be an old school game, but I think you know watching the party's resources gradually diminish as they continue to adventure and having to make that decision point, are we in danger of you know the party being wiped out because we just don't have enough spells left. We don't have enough arrows left. Uh, we're going to starve to death. To me, that's part of the old school way of thinking. But there's a lot of games that say they are OSR or they're inspired by the OSR, and they want nothing to do with that. They'd rather you know, get on with the adventure itself, the role-playing itself, which is a perfectly valid way to play. It's, you know, different people have different styles, and... Some people don't want to touch on the more wargaming aspects, and I think the, the direction the hobby has gone has been to kind of eliminate those more wargaming aspects. Which is also why I'm interested to see your take on one of the two-hour the two hour war games war game, uh, game that you are going to be uh, trying out and experiencing and talking about, because, you know, they're 
there's kind of there's a wargaming kind of foundation to those games, but it's more from the skirmish side, which is a newer aspect of wargaming where you have fewer models on the table and the models are individual soldiers instead of being groups of soldiers and you know just getting your take on how does this look in terms of what we look at in terms of what's expected from more modern RPGs versus the the old school RPGs that were well I guess I should say the original RPGs that were derived from originally more mass combat war gaming versus these two hour war game style games that are a mixture of the skirmish game and the and the RPG aspect. So I certainly look forward to that podcast. Fear not, my friend. I will have that podcast coming out, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, in response to Sam's call, which I think might be Sam's first call into this episode, into this podcast, although I have heard Sam call into another podcast now, so hopefully Sam's going to start calling into a bunch of shows too. But I, I will have my episode on two-hour war, two war games coming up. It's just a, a mix of editing hell, and my life's been super busy, but it, it is coming. I, I will mention, it's interesting, I don't disagree with with your talk on old school and what old school mostly is. I will say as kids, when we played, you know, in the mid eighties, we tended to ignore encumbrance and things like that. And I know when you listen to Tim shorts over at Gothridge Manor, who I don't think anybody would argue is not an old school player. He talks about how sometimes he likes to track arrows and encumbrance and torches and all that. And sometimes he doesn't. So, so I don't know that it's a solid 100% everybody does these things procedurally and everybody does the, the war of attrition kind of thing where you're, you, you know, tracking your resources. But resource management, without a doubt, is built into the old school games, and it is the default assumed way to play those old school games. There's no question about that. Um, it's kind of like the idea of whether old school games are played Monty Hall or not. Because you look at all the, a lot of these early games, a lot of the, the play reports from like Gygax's games, or look at like the Arduin Grimoire, and which you can buy nowadays. Go go pick it up while you can get it, folks. But you look at these things, and obviously there's treasure being thrown around left and right, magic items, all this stuff. It it doesn't deter from the game. But old school games weren't all you know the pathetic aesthetic like we see a lot of people talking about when they talk about OSR stuff. So it's interesting. There's a definitely a, a disconnect between what some folks think OSR is and, and what it was and how it was played. But there's no question that resource management part was an integral part of the games as they're written. I totally agree with that. Thank you so much for that call. And now we're going to finish up the show with some calls from Brian of the Have to Look That Up podcast all the way from down under in Australia. Take it away, Brian. Aloha, Jason. It's Brian. It's probably been a while since I called in to your show. So just want to thank you again, because I do keep up with all of your episodes. I know you, like everybody else, have been really busy with 
you know, the real world stuff. So I'm, I'm greatly appreciative. You keep putting out episodes and in particular, you had a, uh, a nice little defensive 5e episode on uh, a few, a few, uh, probably it's, it's been a few episodes back now, but yeah, appreciated that. I do appreciate all the topics you listen to um, in general. And I'm, going to call into Carl's as well, because I like he's been doing some episodes on, on why you should play, say, X game. Uh, I, I like hearing about pretty much any game, um, even if I'm not necessarily interested when I start or don't necessarily end up going to play it. Um, it's it, it's it's all valuable. I also think it's kind of good, good banter uh, in a friendly way, hopefully. <laughs> Cheers. Aloha, Jason. Brian, again, in Catching up, um, wanted to just make a few points, and this is kind of going back about a month, your defense of 5e episodes, so maybe that was 334, and I liked Eric's call and comments, uh, Eric from the uh, the uh, Omega Chicken Coop, and I, I think this discussion is good because I think one of the things that really hit home for me when, especially when these debates come up about what you should, should play, whether it's 5e or not, obviously 5e is the big one, but when people characterize a type of player and I've, I found the same thing and, you know, again, full disclaimer is, is I play and run five E um, it's, it's just, it's the, it's the one that is most readily available for many people getting into the game. And for those who start with it, like my son just tend to stick with it as I have over the years stuck with kind of a, a BX. And one of the things that I think is is more fascinating, or maybe a more fascinating way to frame this conversation, is to is to see, you know, people coming into the hobby, maybe playing this, people who haven't gamed in a while playing this. And when I say this, meaning five E or given given system, and even experienced gamers who maybe never played it, try it. And I guess I would view it more from a curiosity. I I don't think. You know, it, it needs to be a prescriptive of you should or you shouldn't. But I know there was, um, yeah, a friend of mine, um, James, who uh, vlogs at Living for Crits, um, you know, has given it a, f- a few shots. And, and some of the reasons he said is just he he was he was curious. He said, well, you know, obviously it's it's a new system. Wanted to learn more about it, but also that because of the accessibility and because his kids were were seeing more of their friends playing it, just because it's everywhere, at least wanted to give it a shot for for that reason and giving it a try or or trying it out not again not necessarily because it's the big one or it's what everyone plays but more from a mindset i guess if you're an experienced gamer is it's a way to connect with with newer players or a way to introduce people um and you know again the the reality is it's uh you know it's it's the point where it's everywhere in target and walmart it's really it's ironic to think that you know it started from when it was tsr even though it was in places we had the satanic panic and everything else keeping it out and now it's the norm but i I guess getting back to that I, i think it's you know your mileage vary there are plenty of people who who either may not need or maybe not looking for that. But for me, and especially over here now, um, th- there's there are good gaming scenes, but it's definitely different than in the U.S. And especially for kids getting into it, I mean, it's magnified that that's even more of what they see, um, I guess, until the, the new Marvel game comes out. But uh, anyway, yeah, good discussion. Cheers. Ah, oh, sorry. I thought that was the last one. Just just the last bit of, of things on 5e, I remember. Um, one of the things I found for me, especially now that we're getting back to more in-person gaming, it, it's just been an easy way for me to connect and game 
I, I think I mentioned my podcast, but when I was in Singapore, you know, even with the restrictions they still had there, in-person gaming was possible, but it, it was mostly, at least for RPGs, tabletop RPGs, at least what I found, it was 5e, and that was perfectly fine. And to be honest, um, you know, I, I couldn't necessarily characterize any of the players as a certain type of player. And in fact, in talking with them afterwards, many of whom had played BX like me, some were completely new, I think could have been happy playing any given system as long as they knew enough about it just for the experience. And so, I mean, that's really more the accessibility. It's just, it was there. We came together and game, but yeah, I, it almost really didn't matter what it was. Cheers. Brian, thanks for those calls. Yeah, I don't think it's fair to characterize the players of any game as a single type, as I mentioned in a previous show. Even if it's a game that's quote-unquote dead game that's no longer supported and people are still playing it, that doesn't mean they're all lockstep in their opinions about other games or, you know, about politics or about anything else, right? So, I, yeah, I, I don't think... I mean, if you find a a core group of people that all they play is fatal, then maybe they're lockstep. But for the most part, I, I don't think you're going to find that with any group. And, and personally, I am not a 5e player because I'm lucky enough to have access to be able to play all these other games. Even in the mid-aughts, when I got back into the RPG scene in Northern Virginia, when I was looking for groups, I was able to find groups playing AD&D and BX and Beck me. So I didn't need to delve into, I don't think 5e was out yet. I think it was so 4e back then. But regardless, I, you know, I've been lucky that I've always been able to find diverse groups. So I've always just played other games because 5e doesn't overly appeal to me. But I've played, like say, Beowulf Age of Heroes. I've played the Avengers in Middle Earth variants of it, enjoyed those. And I would play in a 5e game if the next game, Car Rodriguez spun up or that somebody else spun up that was in a time slot where I could play, I, I wouldn't mind playing 5e. I, I don't... There are games that I like the mechanics of better than others, but I don't necessarily think any game's a bad game. Even Cypher, right? I don't like Cypher. I don't... There are things I really don't... I dislike about Cypher. I, I recognize how intelligently it's built, and I recognize how easy it is for a GM to run, and I, I can see why people like Cypher, but the fact that you're both your health and your ability to do cool things are, are from the same pools. The fact that your XP and your ability to do same do cool things are tied together. I, I, I just don't like those kind of mechanics. So for me, Cypher's not a great game, but I would play it if Che Webster spun up another Cypher game. I would hop into that game, you know, without a doubt. In, in fact, speaking of Che Webster, you know, Eric touched earlier on in his call, the idea of playing a game with everything behind the DM screen, where the players don't know the rules, they don't have character sheets, the DM does all the rolling. That's something Che Webster's been talking about at Roleplay Rescue. In a Roleplay Rescue, episode 1020, I think it's 1020, it might be 1019. Now I'm going to give you the wrong number. I'll have the number for you here in a second. But in that episode, he has an interview where he and the, the gentleman he's talking to are talking in depth about this. Daniel Jones is who he talks to. It's actually episode 1019. So Roleplay Rescue episode 1019, check that out. He 
goes to dispel the myths about this pulling the, the rules behind the curtain. It's not about GM power trips or anything like that. And it's not for everybody, and it's not the only way to play. And it's not even saying you should always play that way. But it's an interesting experiment in immersion. And I'm actually working with Che on playing on one of those games. And I'm not, we haven't started it yet, but we're building characters for it. And I'm looking forward to it because I like to try all kinds of different games. So anyway, I, I think I've blathered on enough about that. But thank you, Brian, for those calls. Thank you for the episodes you're putting out. And there'll be more calls from Brian about the Marvel game in my next call-in episode. I, I do have an alibi. One thing I'm definitely might get me into 5e is the upcoming Spelljammer release. So I think it's very exciting. I know a lot of people are into Dragonlance. I never read Dragonlance or played in Dragonlance setting. or So Dragonlance doesn't mean anything to me. I never played in Spelljammer either, but I have read some of the stuff and I am interested in it tangentially just because it kind of fits my thoughts of Gonzo and whatnot. Planescape never did anything for me, but Spelljammer always was attractive to me. So um, that may suck me into 5e. Probably not. I'll probably resist, but it might. Well, that's it. That's the episode. I was recording this on the way to see The Northman. Now that I've seen it, it is by Robert Eggers. I'm not sure if I said Richard or Robert before, but it is Robert Eggers who did do The, the Witch or Vitch, you know, the way it's written in the poster, The Lighthouse. And on the, the glow of leaving the theater, I, I do think it's the best Norse or Viking movie I've ever seen. Um, it's kind of art housey. It's incredibly brutal. And yeah, two thumbs up. But really, the Northman is the subject for a future podcast. So thank you for tuning in. If you want to contribute to my podcast, you can leave a message on Anchor. You can send an email, nerdsrpgvarietycast.gmail.com. If you attach an audio message, I'll play it on the air, make you famous. Otherwise, I can read an email on the air. You can find me on a variety of discords. I hope you contribute. I love getting listener feedback. I want to thank everybody that called into the show. I want to thank Ray Otis for the coffee cup clip art, TJ Drennan for the great music, and you, the listener, for taking time out of your day to listen to little old me. So thank you very much, and I will talk to you guys soon. Take care. Joking about your spouse, but the operator's screaming it's coming from inside the house. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Well, the audience is pretty sure he took a pretty head, and the only question left is if I put a shoot in bed. Bring on the gold, bring on the gold. There is a dustman in your moil's body tipper And I'm assuming that your partner back there in the woods Don't look away Don't look away Don't look away Don't look away Well the zombies are arising and the world is gone to heck We're living for the dying and we're dying for the train wreck oh, 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 o
one of the things I love about the Alamo Draft House is the pre-show. So with the Alamo Draft House, before you when you go see a movie, for half an hour before the show starts, before they even show like the trailers and all that that you normally see before a movie, they show a pre-show which is catered towards each film. They'll show trailers and clips and all kinds of stuff tailored to that particular movie. And it's great. Highly recommended. That's that plus they have an alcohol license. They have great food. They bring the food to your table. They also have a, a pretty solid policy of ejecting people that use their cell phone during the, the show. Big fan of Alamo Draft House. But the pre-show for the Northmen was really cool. You know, they showed all the things you expect, right? Like the Norsemen with Lee Majors, Eric the Conqueror, um, things like that. But they showed a bunch of stuff with Bjork in it. And, and and you guys remember Bjork, the Icelandic singer. And she she actually is in the, the Northman too. But I, I don't know that I'd ever seen one of her music videos before. And and they show the music video for I, I think it's called Human Behavior, where it's got a big teddy bear walking around. He takes out a hunter. It's pretty awesome. And and they had a clip where she's talking about TVs. I'm gonna play you just a snippet of that clip now. Actually, you know what? I'm not going to do it. I am going to link it in the show notes, go in the show notes, watch this three-minute clip of York talking about the TV. It is the most awesome thing in the world. And I'm not talking about her broken English. That's not the part that makes it awesome. Watch the video and you'll understand. 